0: Well, every generation, there are certain people who stand out to us as examples of true greatness. These are men and women who are known for something extraordinary, exceptional, remarkable. And we know there's a difference between greatness from a Christian worldview and a non-Christian worldview. But the one thing uh, we see in nearly every example of greatness from any perspective is that it's the simple, small, ordinary habits and practices that lead to what we see as greatness. The end result is not a flash in the pan, lucky break. In many ways, extraordinary people are those who are able to consistently be ordinary in their habits during good times and bad times, during success and during failure. Now, one of those people who achieved greatness, even from a young age, was Daniel. Taken from his home as a boy, Daniel was relocated to Babylon and placed in the midst of very challenging times. And it was there in that darkness of living in a pagan culture, among the very people that God had used to judge his people, that Daniel's greatness became most evident. But what was it about Daniel that really set him apart from other people? What was it that caused the prophet Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel, to list Daniel alongside Noah and Job as examples of righteousness. What was the key to Daniel's greatness? At the root of it, we know that the key to Daniel's greatness was the faith that he had in the coming Messiah, the one whose kingdom Daniel himself wrote of that would take over the whole world. It was that faith, which was a gift from God, that is the lifeblood of Daniel's life. But it's the way this faith was lived out in Daniel's life that is of special interest to us this morning. The practical effect that Daniel's faith had. The key to Daniel's success in terms of greatness from a Christian perspective lies in the small, ordinary, seemingly mundane precedents that Daniel set in his life. And I believe this is really the key to any of us achieving any type of greatness that's worthy of attaining. Daniel set habits and he stuck to them. He was steady. His response to an extraordinary time, as we'll see this morning, to an unprecedented time, we might say, wasn't to do anything crazy. In fact, Daniel had already figured out what mattered to him. He already knew what true greatness meant, and he didn't really need to change anything when the challenge came. So I've entitled this message this morning, Doing as He Did Aforetime. Unprecedented times call for precedented Measures. And I want to direct your attention to the Old Testament book of Daniel in the sixth chapter. And for the sake of conciseness this morning, I want us to look simply at verse 10. Verse 10, Daniel chapter six. The word of the Lord says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows, in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. As he had done previously. Many, of course, are familiar with the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's an amazing account. It contains all the elements of a great story. The exposition of the story reveals Daniel in the position of great prominence in part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And due to Daniel's impeccable character, he's highly favored by the king. And the conflict of the story is introduced when the jealousy of the other political leaders reaches its boiling point. The rising action has these leaders influencing the king to sign a law prohibiting prayer to anyone but Darius. Leaving Daniel to be cast into the lion's den if he refuses to obey. Of course, Daniel responds by continued prayer. And the high point of the story comes when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and a stone is rolled over the entrance of this den. The king goes to his chambers and sleep flees from him as he is in anguish over what will happen to Daniel. The falling action of the story reveals that God has delivered Daniel much to King Darius's delight. The wicked conspirators are then thrown into the lion's den, thus neatly, perhaps violently, resolving the conflict of the story. Today, however, I just want to focus our attention on verse 10, found in the rising action of the story. And I want us to look at two things in this verse. Number one, the details of the document that Daniel reads. And number two, Daniel's deportment. So the details of the document, and Daniel's deportment, Daniel's behavior and face in the light of this document. So number one, the details of the document. In verse 10, we see that Daniel becomes aware of a document that Darius has just signed. And if you look back at verse 7, you'll see the details of the document. It was a law which had multiple levels of intention. So Darius signs this law that is brought to him by these leaders that are Daniel's peers, and the the political leaders come to Darius and say, we need to uh, make this law that no one can pray to any man or God except you, Darius. And so Darius signs this law, and he's the key authority in its passage. You need Darius' signature for this law to, to be passed. And so perhaps Darius intended this law as merely a means of solidifying allegiance among newly conquered territories. Or maybe Darius saw this as really a formal way to proclaim his greatness, rather than something that he really wanted to enforce strictly. Or maybe this was the Medo-Persian equivalent of what we call today in Congress a rider, a, a, a little statement tacked on to a larger law so it can sneak in under the radar. Maybe the leaders came to Darius and said, hey, here's our foreign policy uh, platform, how we're going to... Uh, faithfulness from these newly conquered territories, and one little rule we have in there is that for 30 days, uh, these these people cannot pray to the gods and people they used to pray to, so they can become, uh, you know, used to being part of your empire. Whatever the case, we don't know, but whatever the case, Darius clearly had no intention of bringing any harm to Daniel with this law. It actually seems in some ways he was completely ignorant of the consequences this would have for Daniel. On the other hand, there was another layer to this law. You see, Daniel's peers proposed this law in order to get rid of Daniel. Here you have a classic case of political leaders establishing policy in order to achieve nefarious ends. I now of course in America we would know nothing of this. Lawmakers would never stoop to such level as to propose a policy for anything other than righteous and pure ends. But in Daniel's day, of course, uh, man hadn't achieved such greatness as today. But let's learn a lesson from this in all seriousness. There are often multiple and even contrary motivations for laws which will conflict with the godly practices of God's people. Again, there's often multiple and conflicting motivations for laws which will conflict with the practices of God's people. Sorting through the details and the motivations and the reasons Behind a law is often like finding a needle in a haystack. It's an exercise in futility. And we'll come back to that. But Daniel reads this law, all right, that is signed by Darius. And we know in 7 it says, Whoever makes a petition of any god or man for 30 days, other than to Darius, of course, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now I want you to note four things about this law. First. This was not a law which only targeted God's people. Okay, this law did not only target God's people. Any person who prayed to any God or any man was breaking the law. Second, it was only a temporary measure. Right, it was not as if Darius was saying you can never pray to your God again. 30 days. Third, it is implicit that this law is referring to at least in some measure public displays of religion, public prayer, and I'll touch on that more later, and fourth, the consequences of the law were almost certain death, being thrown to the lions. So, it was not a law which only targeted God's people. It was a temporary measure. It was in some way referring to public displays of religion, public prayer, and fourth, the consequences were nearly certain death. So, these are the details of the document that Daniel finds himself reading one day. Now, whether Daniel knows the motives, we don't know. We don't know if he knew everything that went on behind the scene. But this much we know. Daniel had already seen a thing or two in his life. At this point, he's an old man. He's already seen his three friends thrown into the fiery furnace for their unwillingness to bend to another unjust law. And here, near the end of Daniel's life, he reads of a law which forbids him from praying to God. And it reminds us, as God's people, we really never can guess what sort of laws are going to come down the pipeline. I don't know if Daniel would have ever guessed that prayer would have been the issue that would have caused him to be thrown into the lion's den. And I don't know if Jack Phillips thought that it would be the matter of decorating a cake that would lead him to being thrown into the lion's den of liberalism. You never can tell. But it's not our job to figure that out and to worry about what's coming next. Our job is to be faithful. So this is the details of the document Daniel reads. I want us to now consider Daniel's deportment. How did Daniel respond to this document? Upon reading this document, Daniel is faced with an extraordinary circumstance. Right? What do you do? How do you respond to something like this? Daniel's response reminds me of this story. uh, one of my old pastors, Pastor Carl, who officiated at my wedding. He was talking about this old Christian farmer, old godly man, simple man, loves the Lord and loves farming. right? And so he, he's, he's talking to this farmer and he says, you know, they're talking about the Lord coming back and, and Christian living. And he says to the farmer, if you knew Jesus was coming back today, what would you do? What would you do if Jesus is coming back today? And the farmer thinks for a moment and said, well, I suppose I would get up and go out and milk the cows. You see, that's how I see Daniel here. He's an old man of godly habits, a man characterized not by flash in the pan greatness, but steadiness, faithfulness, consistency, year in and year out. Like I said, we don't know if Daniel knew all the details behind the law. He may have suspected them to be sure. But the idea I get in reading this is that it really didn't matter to Daniel why the law was put in place. What difference would it make to Daniel? He had set a godly, righteous, ordinary pattern of prayer. And I get the idea reading this that even the end of the world wouldn't have been able to change that for Daniel. So Daniel learns about this law and he just keeps doing what he had been doing previously. The key is at the end of verse 10 as he had done previously daniel's response was to keep doing what he did aforetime what he had done in the past now in saying that daniel kept doing what he had previously done i would note that there are a lot of things daniel could have done right daniel could have petitioned the king and rallied support and created a big stir right there's no doubt that daniel certainly had a group of people who would have supported him in this, he could have created the Medo uh, Persian, Medo Persian moral majority group to seek to change the law, to get support behind him. Or Daniel could have made a brazen show of his unwillingness to bend to the law. He could have said, "I'm going to pray even more and even more publicly to show everyone how much I defy this unjust law." He could have he could have done those things. On the other hand, Daniel could have made some temporary but serious changes to his prayer habits. Remember, it's just 30 days. He could have at least tried to show some conformity to the law. And there are a lot of reasons that Daniel uh, could have for doing that from a human perspective. First of all, things are going really well for Daniel right now, really remarkably well when you consider it. You know, despite some previous persecutions and hiccups in the past, he had achieved a great level of influence. And everyone knew about his faith, and they really didn't seem to have a fundamental problem with his faith per se. In fact, the wicked leaders here are just using his religion as a way to get rid of him because they're jealous. Even the king himself has no desire to specifically prevent Daniel from, his, from exercising his religious beliefs. And even the law itself applied to everyone equally, not specifically to Daniel's faith. To upset the apple cart now when he had achieved so much might not be wise. Wouldn't it make, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't he be able to make a greater impact, especially given his position of leadership, if he laid low for 30 days and waited for this to subside? Such are questions that face Daniel and such are questions that have faced the church throughout her history. In the 15th chapter of Romans, the apostle Paul says, for whatsoever things were written, aforetime were written for our learning for our instruction the example of Daniel a godly man required to respond to an ungodly circumstance is a paradigm that has repeated itself throughout church history from the first century Christians who faced laws requiring them to worship the Emperor all the way down until today and a lot in between This account was certainly written for our instruction because this type of thing happens. It's happened throughout church history. So Daniel could have done a number of things here. Daniel could have spent his time deliberating as to how to respond based on a number of interconnected variables. If I do this, this will happen, and this person might respond this way, and the leaders might do this. But Daniel cared nothing for hedging his bets or playing to the whims of the current political climate. He'd seen it before, and if he lived long enough, he'd see it again. Kings rising to power, kings falling from power. Daniel didn't care about any of that. He was a man of simple precedence. He followed God's law, day in and day out. On a sunny day, you follow God's law. On a cloudy day, he followed God's law. In times of prosperity, you follow God's law. In times of adversity, you follow God's law. Nothing Daniel was going to do was going to be based on the reactions of those around him. He was concerned with one thing, faithfulness. Ordinary, everyday faithfulness to God. And so in many ways, his response wasn't extraordinary. It wasn't. It wasn't on either end of the spectrum, right? I imagine Daniel sort of like that old Christian farmer, just thinking for a moment, reading over the document and saying, "Well." I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. No reason to change now. You see, Daniel was a man who established, who was established in the ordinary means of grace and not even the threat of death was going to deter him from his godly habits and duties. He was going to keep plodding along. The extraordinary times, the unprecedented times in Daniel's life called forth from Daniel ordinary measures. A friend of mine serves in the 1040 window in what many would say are extraordinary conditions. And he's told me more than once that the way he looks at this is he's simply trying to be faithful to God in the little things. He's simply seeking to plod along one faithful step at a time. Faithful plodding, faithful living. And Daniel is an example of that. Nothing fancy. Just keep doing what you're doing to serve God. Now let me briefly address here the question as to whether Daniel's prayer was public or private. I believe the text gives us at least the idea that Daniel's practice of prayer was not merely a private exercise of religion, even though it did happen in his house. I got three reasons why I believe this prayer was at least somewhat public. Number one, The law would seem to imply public auditory prayer, or else how would you be able to enforce it? Number two, the wicked leaders knew that Daniel prayed to God, and they seemed to know when and where he did it. Right? This is affirmed in verse 10, where he kept doing what he was doing previously, and people knew Daniel's habits. And number three, the open windows, in verse 10, seem to suggest that his actions were visible. In some way. And the Genevan reformers, these were men who knew a thing or two about not bending to political compromise. The reformers noted that Daniel kept the windows open, that others might see that he would neither consent in heart nor deed for these few days to anything that was contrary to God's glory. Daniel didn't live in rural Delaware. All right. Moreover, Daniel was a man of far more public interest than any of us here. If President Trump opened the windows of the Oval Office and knelt down three times a day, I bet you'd hear about that. Even if the governor of Delaware did that, I bet we'd hear about it. And Daniel was certainly at least as notable and public a figure as a governor in Babylon here. So when you look at Daniel's response, it's sort of vanilla, right? It's kind of predictable. The conspirators even knew Daniel would respond this way, and he did. Whether or not Daniel knew he'd be delivered from the lions was, I think, really irrelevant to Daniel. Remember Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace? There's a little line they say when they are confronted by King Nebuchadnezzar about not bowing to his image. They say to the king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We're not careful to answer you in this. Their point was this. There's really not much of a debate here. The matter's simple. It's simple. And I think that's how Daniel viewed the decree. The matter's simple. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. Why would I stop? The government has no authority in this area and my duty is to God. And so Daniel doesn't stop. He prays and gives thanks to his God, even in times such as this, which is a lesson for us as well. And the king is forced to stick to his decree, and despite his anguish, Daniel's put inside the lion's den, stone is rolled over the entrance, darkness falls on the scene, and the scene closes. And Daniel is there for his faithfulness to God. You know how people say, um and it's it's kind of true, not the ultimate reason for telling the truth, but people say it's better to tell the truth, because then you don't have to remember all the lies you've told different people, and remember all your stories and It's so much easier to tell the truth. In the same way, right, in a similar way at least, I should say, setting ordinary godly habits and sticking to them is much easier than trying to figure out how to respond to every single political obstacle in an ever-changing world filled with opposition to Christ's kingdom. It's simpler, it's easier to seek to be faithful to ordinary habits, come what may. Now, if we do what we're called to do, study the word, pray together, gather together, love one another, share the truth in our speech, will anything ever happen that would really cause us to stop doing those things? The threat of death didn't deter Daniel. He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God. So such was Daniel's deportment, even in the midst of a challenging time. That was Daniel's deportment. Now, what application may we make from this? I have three points of application here. First, I want to address the non-Christian. Then I want to look at the individual Christian and then the church at large. So let me first briefly address the non-Christian. If the non-Christian hears this message, it may be that this whole thing seems a bit strange and unnecessary. Isn't this Daniel a bit of an unbending uncompromising character, he takes things a bit too seriously. I mean, being unwilling to even change his prayer habits, at least outwardly, even if it means being cast into the lion's den. And, and on top of that, this whole Christianity thing just seems a bit strange. right? Is it really that big a deal to bend a little and compromise a little bit? Right. The non-Christian would ask that question if they're thoughtful, and it's a legitimate question. The thoughtful Christian will be aware that Daniel was not the only one tossed to the lions. Christians in the first century who were unwilling to bend, unwilling to even outwardly conform to state-sanctioned religion, were tossed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. And Christians today who are unwilling to bend on matters of conscience and practice, unwilling to decorate a cake celebrating sin, may seem odd to you if you're a non-Christian. And if it all seems strange to you as a non-Christian, you are not alone. Christianity has been viewed as odd by non-Christians for 2,000 years. It should seem strange to the non-Christian. You see, Christianity places a higher value on faithfulness to God than personal comfort or achievement. That's contrary to a non-Christian worldview. And it must be stressed to those considering the claims of Christ there is an aspect of Christianity, which may mean you lay down your life because of your faithfulness to Christ. And it's true that becoming a Christian means that you are put into the midst of a spiritual battle and conflict. And you're called to speak the truth, speak up for the weak, confront darkness. And it's true that becoming a Christian will radically change the values and the way you spend your time in your life. There's no question about that. On the other hand, on the other hand, I would want the non-Christian to know that much of the Christian life is ordinary and plain. Much of the Christian life is ordinary. We truly do, as Christians, aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs. While we're called to have the same faith as Daniel had, faith in the Messiah, many many of us will not be put and the situation that Daniel was put in. You may be called to simply be a housewife, raising your children, to be a husband and a father, working 50 hours a week in a factory to provide. Coming to Christ doesn't change those responsibilities. It doesn't mean you enter into some extraordinary experience with floating axe heads and talking donkeys and angels visiting your house. Living the Christian life means that you are called to live in the midst, oftentimes, of an ungodly society, loving your family, loving your church, serving others, and setting simple, ordinary patterns that will come to shape you, your family, and your community. Faithfulness. It's a simple life of faithfulness. The Christian is to live an ordinary life, trusting God for extraordinary grace when those ordinary things come in conflict with the world. Part of counting the cost and coming to Christ is to understand what the Christian life is all about. And if the non-Christian just doesn't get why faithfulness to Christ is that important, then they've really missed the heart of Christianity. That Jesus laid down his life in faithfulness to his promise to deliver his people and rose again, bringing to life all of God's children, all of the elect with him. That we would live a life of gratitude and faithfulness to him who died for us. So that's a word of application to the non-Christian. <clears throat> Get some water. Get some water. Number two, second point of application for the individual. One thing we clearly see in verse 10 is that Daniel was a man of godly habits, and habits can be a great blessing or they can be a great curse. If they're bad habits, the habits we set will shape who we are. Daniel was known for his faithful character. Thank you. Faithful character and his devotion to God's law. Nothing fancy to the world. But this is what characterized Daniel. So much so that his enemies even knew his daily prayer schedule. Are there habits that you set in your life that you will not change through good times and bad times? Might I suggest, in addition to a time of prayer, as we see modeled by Daniel, a time of family prayer and studying the word together. Now, I want you to think about something when it comes to the habits you set as an individual and as a family. Are you willing to die for this habit? Are you willing to die for your habit of praying to God? Are you willing to die for your habit? of conducting family worship? These are questions we need to ask. How important do we take these things? Daniel was willing to die for his habit of daily prayer. Are we willing to die for the godly habits that we set? It's a question to ask ourselves. Our final point of application is for the church of Jesus Christ at large. And we look to Daniel, and I believe this is a model For unprecedented times. In many ways, of course, we are living in unprecedented times as a nation. There's no question, right, that we should think carefully about the current situation going on with the virus. All right. There are biblical guidelines to follow regarding contagious illnesses and each local church has to look at those issues and make a decision before their Lord. And what I'm about to say is not about Christians sitting sitting in judgment on other Christians. These these thoughts are not about pointing fingers at churches. This is about evaluating the current climate of Christianity in America, of which I am just as much a product as you are. And if we do not seek to evaluate how we handle this whole situation that is going on right now in our day, we are really assuming that we figured it all out. Uh, we figured this out, we don't really need to think about it that much. We must always be willing to see if there's something we can improve upon, something we can do better, perhaps even if something like this happens again in our lifetime. I think it would be foolish to conclude that the church in America is handling this situation perfectly with the coronavirus. I certainly don't think I'm handling this or any aspect of life perfectly. I always need more instruction from God's word. And so does the church. So I think there is application to be made here from Daniel's example to our time. Was not this written for our instruction? And why? Right? Why is this written for our instruction? Because the church of Jesus Christ is made up of thousands, millions of Daniels. The triumph of Jesus at the cross That great Messiah that Daniel looked forward to has brought about the spread of the faith that was present in Daniel. And so let us consider application from this principle that Daniel shows us of doing as one did aforetime. This example of godly precedents and sticking to them, especially in our current situation. So think about this. The government, as we've seen, can have many reasons for targeting Christians. And it can even be inadvertent, right? Darius certainly had no intention of bringing harm to Daniel. And the intent of the law on Daniel's day, just as it is oftentimes in our day, is not the systematic suppression of true religion. In Daniel's case, it was motivated by jealousy. And there have been a, a variety of motives to ungodly laws throughout church history. Many Christians in the Puritan era faced laws against attending unauthorized church services. If we were in Puritan era England, when these laws were in place, forget about the virus. This would be illegal because we're not at a state-sanctioned church. In that case, the gospel was even being preached at many of these state-sanctioned churches. But the nonconformists wouldn't even bend a little. they said, say, well, I can go there because there's still the gospel being preached. They would risk and suffer much because of their commitment to meeting together on their own terms under Christ and his word, not the government's regulation. There really could be a number of reasons behind any law that in some form or fashion disrupts faithfulness to God. In the end, the question we must ask is this. Does it really matter what the reason for the law is? An unjust law could even be given with entirely good motives, such as to potentially slow the spread of a disease. It's a good motive. could still be an unjust law. The circumstances will always be different. But the lesson from Daniel is that I don't think it mattered to Daniel the reason for the law. He didn't have to figure it out. He just kept doing his ordinary things. He had set a precedent, and no matter what, no matter how unprecedented the times, he just kept going. Which leads me to my second point here under this application. I think the church of Jesus Christ, all of us, we need to determine ahead of time what those things are, which we will not abandon no matter what. If we know what our duty is ahead of time, there's little to figure out. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, when you know your duty, when you know your duty, first thoughts are best. If the thing is obviously right, Never think about it a second time. Know your duty. Gathering together as a body of believers is one of those godly habits that has characterized Christians for 2,000 years, even amid the threat of death from government, even I would add amid death from plague and sickness. Christians still met together, realizing that part of our well-being, even our physical well-being, is strengthened by gathering together as God's people. And in his first year of ministry in London, Spurgeon faced the outbreak of the Asiatic cholera. And not only did Spurgeon go from house to house doing his duty as a pastor and visiting the sick, but he kept meeting with the church. He kept meeting with the church, receiving new members, pursuing inactive members, and observing the Lord's Supper. He wrote of the pestilence of disease, saying that even from that calamity, Our faith shall win immunity, if it be of that high order which abides in God, walks on in calm serenity, and ventures all things for duty's sake. Spurgeon also noted what is evident to many of us as we look around at what's going on in our day. He said, faith by cheering the heart keeps it free from the fear, which in times of pestilence kills more than the plague itself. Fear kills more than the plague itself. In an article entitled, Christianity Has Been Handling Epidemics for 2,000 Years, Lehman Stone traces the Christian response to plagues throughout church history, showing that from the very beginning of her history, the church was on the front lines, serving those during the plague. And Jeremy mentioned this a couple weeks ago. But he notes how Martin Luther urged faithfulness to duty, even during the plague in Germany. Stone summarized Luther's stance as this. We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals. Christian governors cannot flee their districts. Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. I know a dear brother who is an open-air preacher in New York City. At the heart of the sin of our nation and at the heart of this outbreak of virus, of the virus. And I spoke with him a couple of days ago, and he was out in the subway preaching Christ in the midst of this virus. And I asked him, why did you do that? You know, why are you out there in these times when it could be dangerous? And he said, the doctors can't leave the hospital, right? We have a duty to do. Why would I not be out there sharing Christ when people need him now as much as ever? Stone then makes this statement, he says, one of the more controversial elements of historic Christian plague ethics is this, we don't cancel church. He says some observers will view this as fanaticism, right? Just like, Daniel, what are you doing? Some people say it's crazy. Christians are so obsessed with church going that they'll risk epidemic disease to show up. But he says this, he says "That's, that's not really all it is. The coronavirus leaves over 95% of its victims still breathing. But it leaves virtually every member of society afraid, anxious, isolated, alone, and wondering if anyone would even notice if they're gone. He says in an increasingly atomized society, the coronavirus could rapidly mutate into an epidemic of despair. You see, Stone's arguing that meeting together is one of those duties. Which glorifies God and edifies the saints. It has value. It is essential to our health, both physical and spiritual. That's why Luther, even after giving many exhortations to be wise and avoid unnecessary danger and be prudent, right? Not to be presumptuous and not just ignore the virus. But after all those things, he says, first one must admonish the people to attend church. Our society's values, right? And this is not about any church in particular. This is our society as a whole. Our society's values are being brought to the surface during this time. Right? We have Planned Parenthoods that are still open. And the church buildings are closed. In Puritan times, <clears throat> a plague or calamity <clears throat> in some ways would increase the need for God's people to gather together and pray to the Lord of that plague that in his mercy he would relent of his judgment against the nation. And this is certainly a judgment of God against our nation. And it seems that the precedents that Christians have set and maintained in the past, in some ways, are being set aside. Should we not do as we did aforetime? That's the question the church needs to ask itself as it comes out of this. We are to show grace. We are not sitting in judgment on other Christians, but the church at whole needs to, as a whole, needs to ask these questions. right? We live in a world that this will not be the last time we see something like this, as the church at least. How do we respond? What are the precedents that we set as individuals and as God's people that we will not abandon, no matter what? In conclusion, the example. Of Daniel was written down for the sake of God's people the church of Jesus Christ that we might learn that we might be instructed Daniel is an example of faithfulness and godliness even in the face of danger But our strength doesn't come from just looking at Daniel and trying to be like him It comes from looking at a greater Daniel the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus was also known for his character and commitment to God's law, just like Daniel. Jesus was also targeted because of the jealousy of the leaders around him. He also had men seek to use God's law against him. And Jesus was also unwilling to compromise even when tempted by the devil himself. Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners like you, like me, like Daniel, And Jesus, like Daniel, was given over to death. A stone was rolled over the entrance of Jesus' tomb, just like it was rolled over the entrance of the lion's den. In Daniel's case, God delivered Daniel from death. In Jesus' case, Jesus delivered us by defeating death. One came forth from the cave delivered from the lions by God's grace. The other came forth from the tomb as a lion who conquered death for his people. And we are to strive to live for him who died for us. In our weak and frail attempts, he will help us. And we are to live for him that others might see that we, like Daniel, will neither consent in heart nor deed to anything contrary to God's glory. And that people might see And come to know that Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word to us. I thank you for the example of Daniel. I pray, Lord, for your word to instruct us, encourage us. I pray that you would help your church to have wisdom. Lord, we know this is not an easy time. We know that godly men desire to serve you and be faithful to you and and may have a a different view on some of these things. And we can have grace, but we can also think deeply about this as we are required to be wise in the age we live in and apply your law no matter what situation faces us. I pray that this time that your church, not just in America, but in the world is going through, would be a time that you use to have the church reevaluate and determine what are those things that are so essential that we will not abandon and that we will be committed to those more than ever and perhaps jettison everything else. That we will be focused on our duty to you and our duty to one another. That the world would see the example of the Christian church, not just in this time, but in days ahead, Lord, if you grant us many more years that the church would shine forth as an example to the world of the faith that Daniel had, the faith that you gave him. I pray Lord for revival in the midst of this time of judgment that you would be merciful, that you would relent of, of, of your, your, ju- your just judgment against sinners and that you would be pleased to bring about the conversion of many people in this nation. Help us to set godly habits in our lives with our families individually that we will not abandon whether we're faced with death or whether we're just tired and lazy. That we would be consistent, godly, precedented people who follow your word no matter what. I thank you for these brothers and sisters here. Lord, we are so weak and needy. We are undone before you. We are not worthy of your love and kindness to us. We're not worthy of any wisdom that you would give from your word, which is full of wisdom. We're not worthy to have any insight. We're not worthy to have any knowledge of who you are. But yet you graciously have given us your word. Help us to be humble. Help us to be thoughtful. To consider how we might live in this time. How we might live in the days ahead. How we might be people who are faithful no matter what. We do pray that you would protect each one of us here, spiritually increase our faith. We pray for physical protection. There are different congregations represented here. We we pray for each one of those congregations and for the leaders of those churches for wisdom and insight and even boldness in these times. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. We thank you for Jesus Christ and the resurrection of which we are made partakers of through faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Interaction? Okay, this is the habit of... uh